I uh, recently heard this story of uh, Easter production. And there was a child who was assigned the biggest line of the moment. He would come center stage and in full confidence and at the top of his lungs, he would shout, he is risen. He is not here. He is risen. That's what he would say. So he comes out to take his place and he forgets his line. He looks down at his teacher who whispers the line. He's not here. He has risen. And so he stands back up and he straightens out and he says, folks, he is not here. He is in prison. <laughs> I love that. And I think that works for our church, right? I think both are true. He is risen and he is in prison. And uh, I just think that's fantastic. And if you are coming in uh, not knowing what to expect, I'll just give it to you on the front end. Uh, we're gonna cover a lot of ground. A lot of information is coming your way. Uh, it's probably going to feel more academic uh, than you would expect, uh, but there's a reason behind that. I sometimes am concerned by the level of insecurity I bump into uh, in Christian spaces. I think we have a lot more to hold on to with confidence uh, that we shouldn't be as wishy-washy uh, in our faith. In addition to that, some of you, you may be skeptical or a critic of what we believe, and I'm so thrilled that you are here because uh, much of my life was lived in that frame of mind, and I anchored myself to a worldview that uh, insisted on God not existing. And... I'm so thankful that you are here and, and I pray that somewhere in this conversation, uh, you find yourself intrigued and maybe even curious as to, wait a second, there might be more to this Jesus. And folks, there's always more to this Jesus. Can I get an amen? amen. I, I love the Bible and I find that most people don't fully understand what they're holding on to when they hold on to the Bible. Most people think this is a book they think this is a novel, and it's neither. You cannot say the Bible is a book. If anything, the Bible is a library made up of 66 books written by individuals spanning the centuries, individuals who lived in different regions, uh, individuals who facilitated and functioned in different occupations, individuals who never met each other and were disjointed throughout history, yet somehow they all told the same story. It's pretty fascinating how this library was pieced together. There was a man by the name of Theophilus, which for those of you who are pregnant and still thinking about a name, that one's pretty unique. <laughs> Theophilus was well-established. He was wealthy. He was a dignified individual within the community. And he was living in the time in which Jesus came teaching, performing miracles, predicting his death and his resurrection, and then he pulled it off, which for the record, anybody who predicts their death and their resurrection and pulls it off has a lot of credibility in my mind. If he has anything to say about my life, he wins because no one else has done that. And so this movement begins. And anyone know what the movement is called? The local church. The local church is ignited and it's fascinating because this movement is unparalleled and it's the greatest movement in human history. It has touched down on every continent around the world and billions of people have devoted their lives to following Jesus Christ and this movement is still alive and strong and flourishing throughout the world and it all begins with this Jesus. Theophilus was, was curious as to what is going on 
This man came back to life and hundreds upon hundreds of people have documented their witness. They seen Jesus. And so he goes and hires a physician and a historian, a highly educated and skilled individual by the name of Luke. And he says, Luke, will you uh, do a thorough due diligence of the things taking place among us? Would you do a research project? Here's what you have to understand about the Bible. The people who wrote the Bible when writing didn't realize they were writing the Bible. So Luke is a book in the Bible, but Luke had no idea that his letter to this one individual would make its way into God's written word. This is really fascinating stuff. So Luke comprises all the details. And he starts out his letter to Theophilus like this. Luke chapter one, verse one, he says, in as much as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us. What you have to understand is so many people were trying to capture the moment. Hey, this is, this is history. This has never been done before. We have to write it down. We have to capture what is happening. And so things were documented by the Romans and documented by the Jews and documented by the Christians. There's so much documentation because everybody was trying to capture history unfolding before them. And says, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses, think about this, and ministers of the word and delivered them to us. What Luke is saying is, I personally know people who were eyewitnesses and friends of Jesus and spent time with him after his death. And he says, they delivered this to us and it seemed good to me also having followed all things closely for some time past to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. I so appreciate people like Luke. Individuals who say, I'm gonna do a thorough due diligence and I'm gonna look into this. And I am going to gather the facts also that we can have confidence and certainty regarding the things we've been taught. And I'm telling you, if you are a follower of Christ who finds that you at times are insecure, or doubtful in your faith, uh, the resurrection is one of those things that should bolster your confidence. Now, understand this, Luke is championed and celebrated by ancient literature uh, experts and historians all around the world. In this time of history, with the limited resources that he had, most agree that this is a historical and a literary masterpiece. In fact, an individual by the name of Leland Riken, who is an expert on ancient literature, he says this about Luke. He says, no gospel encompasses such a complete range of subgenres as Luke. Annunciation stories, birth narratives, lyric praise psalms, Christmas carols, prophecies, genealogies, preparation stories, temptation stories, calling stories, recognition stories, conflict stories, encounter stories, miracle stories, pronouncement stories, parables, beatitudes, sermons, proverbs, passion stories, trial narratives, resurrection accounts, he says, stylistically, Luke is known. 
In other words, he's known among historical and literary experts. He is known for his vivid, descriptive details and an ability to make scenes come alive in the imagination. See, the question is, is why did Luke's letter to this man by the name of Theophilus, why did it end up in the Bible? How did it end up in the Bible? See, what happened is, is individuals were documenting the story. And before they, you know, before long, they started to realize, wait a second, these letters pair with these, with these other letters. And somehow these are saying the same thing. In fact, they're, they're fulfilling the ancient scriptures. This is all one narrative. See, what happened is, is over time throughout the history and throughout the ages, individuals would make prophecies. God would impress upon people things to foretell and predict. And over time, Jesus would eventually arrive and he would begin fulfilling those prophecies. And this stuff is really unlikely. It's in fact impossible that Jesus would accomplish this. I mean, just to give you some basic ones that might stretch your thinking. In the book of Daniel, okay? So there's 456 prophecies in the Bible. That's a lot of prophecies and predictions. In the book of Daniel, Daniel 530 years before Jesus ever showed up, predicted the time Jesus would arrive. Think about that. Like that is really impressive. 530 years in advance, he predicts the time Jesus would arrive. In addition to that, Micah, 700 years before Jesus would ever arrive, predicts the town. And the more these prophecies would stack upon each other, the more specific they would become. And now you have the right time with the right town. This becomes highly unlikely that one individual is gonna fulfill this. He did that 700 years before Jesus ever showed up in Bethlehem. In addition to that, David made a prophecy about the tool a thousand years before Jesus arrived. Now, when I say the tool, what tool am I talking about? The cross. Now get this, David foretold of the cross and how Jesus would die a thousand years in advance. But here's what's fascinating. He did so a few hundred years before the cross was ever invented as an execution tool and mastered by the Romans. This is really impressive. Long before it was ever a concept, it was predicted thousands of years before. And what you find is Jesus shows up and he fulfills these prophecies. And the question is, what are the chances? That seems highly unlikely. There is a professor at Westmont College, and he was overseeing six, uh, 12 classes uh, comprising of 600 students. And so he developed a research project. All 600 students are gonna participate and we are gonna do a deep dive into the economics and the mathematics and the scientific probability of one man fulfilling all these prophecies. So what they did is they, they did their research and here, here was his standard. He said, I want you to continue reducing the probabilities to a conservative number until everybody unanimously agrees with the probability. Among 600 kids, there were a lot of non-believers, individuals who didn't agree with Christianity or the faith. And 
He said, get it to a point where unanimously everybody agrees. And so they boil it down to a conservative number. Then he takes that number and then he goes to peer review and he takes it to global scholars around the world. And he says, hey, will you check the work? And they reduced the probability even more. Then they took their work to the American Scientific Affiliation, which certifies these type of findings. And they said, would you look at our work? To which they came back and they said, your work is factual, accurate, and dependable. Now for illustration's sake, here's what they came up with. Let's just say Jesus fulfills eight, just eight of them, eight of 456 prophecies. What are the chances? And they said the chances are one and 10 to the 17th power. Meaning you have a better chance of winning the lottery in multiple states in the same week than Jesus just fulfilling eight prophecies. They said, let's take it a little bit further. Let's, let's look at 48 prophecies, just over 10%. What are the chances that Jesus would fulfill just 10% of the prophecies? And they said, it's the chances of one and 10 to the 157th power. Folks, 157 zeros. Now, for those of you who come from the mathematic community, you would be aware of this. The math community, economics community, they would say that anything beyond the power of 50 is impossible. I have a friend who's a professor in mathematics, and I said, so what would be your take on this? He said, well, it's, it's pretty clear. From day one, Jesus accomplished the impossible. And folks, from day one, Jesus accomplished the impossible and he fulfills all these predictions and all these prophecies. And I'm telling you what he did has been unmatched, unparalleled, and it's something that should come with more confidence. He does the impossible. So when you look at the resurrection, it's again, it's like, well, from day one, his whole track record has been accomplishing the impossible. So why not this as well? Now, there is this idea that is gaining traction in our world. And, and I sometimes think my job is to give commentary on the things I see and hear. And the idea is this, and maybe you've said it, or maybe someone has told it to you. And that is all religions are the same. Your truth is your truth. My truth is my truth. All religions are the same. And folks, uh, it just doesn't carry water over time. There's a lot of distinctions when it comes to Christianity. And today I'll just share with you three that you find in the writings of Luke. Three distinctions that set Christianity apart from every other major world religion. Three distinctions that you will not find in another world religion. And those are one, the incarnation. This is a big theological concept, but, but lean in on me. I know it's Easter and you're cute and you're dressed up and you're ready for the celebration, <laughs> but this might be knowledge that you can stand and build your life upon for the rest of your life. The incarnation is the truth that God became like us, that God came to us, that he took on bodily form. In other words, the incarnation is God in a bod. Yeah, that works. <laughs> and you'll remember that. 
He became like us. Folks, here's the deal. You will not find in another major world religion a God who becomes like his adherents. Everyone else is saying, you have to become like God. You have to subscribe to all these rules, regulations, and standards. And if you're really good, you can become worthy of getting to God. Christianity is the only religion that says, this isn't how you get to God. This is how God came to us. So it's a big distinction. The other massive theological concept that is a big distinction for our faith is the theology of atonement. Atonement is simply the idea that humanity is fractured, broken, and sinful. And we have racked up a debt we can't pay on our own. Jesus not only becomes like us, he shows up and pays for us. He marches to the cross, he gives his life as a sacrifice, and he atones for the sins of the world. And again, you will not find another major world religion with a God who atones for the sins of humanity. You just won't find that. And lastly, you will not find another major world religion with the theology of the resurrection. You won't find another God who shows up, becomes like us, who shows up and pays for us and then goes a step further and defeats death on behalf of us. These are big distinctions. Now, you may not wanna be a Christian and you may not subscribe to our beliefs and, and that's okay, um, but you, you can't make the claim that all religions are the same. That's, that's not really logical. You have to stare deeper into these things. And what you find is Luke, well, he establishes Christianity in a pretty remarkable way. In terms of the resurrection, this is what he says in Luke chapter 24. It says, on the first day of the week at early dawn, they went to the tomb, taking the spices they had prepared, and they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. But when they went in, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were perplexed about this, behold, two men stood by them in dazzling apparel. And as they were frightened and bowed their faces to the ground, the men said to them, which I love this question. And I, I wonder if it'll resonate with some of you today. Why do you seek the living among the dead? Have you ever found that you're looking for all the, the, the wrong things in all the wrong places? Maybe you're searching for identity or purpose or fulfillment, and maybe you can relate to looking for the living, looking for true life among the dead. This is a pretty hefty question. He goes on to say, he is not here, but has risen. And I love this statement. Remember how he told you. This is fascinating to me. Jesus shows up and he starts to tell people, hey, they're gonna arrest me. They're going to kill me. I'm gonna come back to life and surprise everybody. They're gonna arrest me, they're gonna kill me, and then I'm going to surprise everybody. Hey, just one more time so we're clear. They're gonna arrest me, they're gonna kill me, and then I'm gonna come back and surprise everybody. And then he pulls it off and no one sees it coming. Like I think Jesus is just fascinating to me. The angels say, hey, remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee, that the son of man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified. And on the third day rise. 
And they remembered his words and returning from the tomb, they told all these things to the 11 and all the rest. Now, it was Mary Magdalene and Joanna, Mary, the mother of James and the other women with them who told these things to the apostles. But these words, look at this. But these words seemed to them an idle tale and they did not believe them. Which some of you, you might show up and you think, it seems like a, a, a fairy tale. I don't believe it. Well, welcome to the party. Neither did the disciples. And for many of us, that's how our journey begins. They didn't believe him. But verse 12, but Peter rose. Look at your neighbor and say, Peter rose. Come on, all of our campuses, Peter rose. Yeah. But Peter rose and ran to the tomb. Stooping and looking in, he saw the linen cloths by themselves and he went home marveling at what had happened. I find this whole situation comical, fascinating, and marvelous. For starters, I love Peter. Anyone who knows Peter's story knows Peter is coming off of a really bad week. Peter is in the dumps feeling pretty low about himself. And I love his response. The women arrive and they say, hey, he is risen. And though he was doubtful, it says he rose because I believe inside Peter was this thought, wait a second. If he has risen, I can keep rising. Hey, life is tough, but so are you. And if he has risen, you can keep rising and you can stand firm in the Christ and the strength found in Christ and you can live a victorious life. If he has risen, you can keep rising, amen? So he, he, he takes off to the tomb. And I love this because people will say this is a hoax. This is a scam that these individuals duped humanity. And I think that is a, a pretty massive insult on billions of people, bright, logical, hardworking, dedicated, and devoted individuals who have uh, surrendered their life to Jesus Christ. But nonetheless, uh, there is this thought that this is a hoax. And my thought in response is, well, if this is a plan to dupe humanity, this is a terrible plan. And from day one, they're not getting started on the right foot. For starters, not even the disciples believe it and none of them know what's going on. And in addition to that, if you were trying to develop a plan that would stand the test of time, especially in this era, you would not have sent women to be the first witnesses. Now, no offense, ladies, but at the time of Jesus, women didn't have any rights. They were not allowed to serve as witnesses in the court of law. Here's how petty it got. The Romans would have these festivities and every time there was a full moon, they would throw these festivities and the party would begin as the moon would rise. And here's what's interesting to me. There was such a low confidence in women during that time that the women were not allowed to go outside and watch the moon rise for the celebration, which I love because Jesus shows up on the scene in a world that doesn't allow women to watch the moon rise. And he says, yeah, but you can watch the sun rise and you can be the first witnesses to tell my story. 
It is such a remarkable thing. The challenge is we, we live in a world where everybody's an expert, so nobody is an expert. And we live in this pattern of thinking that assumes and is starting to believe that all ideas are equal, and that's problematic. And I recently read a book by a guy by the name of Tom Nichols, and for awareness, I, I'm not sure if he's a Christian or not. His book certainly is not a faith-based book. He is an academic specialist in international affairs, and he wrote a book called The Death of Expertise. And as I was reading this book, I, I couldn't help but see parallels in the resurrection conversation. And, and here are some things that Tom Nichols says in his book. He says, these are dangerous times. Never have so many people had so much access to so much knowledge and yet been so resistant to learning anything. The bigger problem is that we're proud of not knowing things. Americans have reached a point where ignorance, especially of anything related to public policy, is an actual virtue. To reject the advice of experts is to assert autonomy, a way for Americans to insulate their increasingly fragile egos from ever being told they're wrong about anything. When feelings matter more than rationality or facts, education is a doomed enterprise. As it turns out, However, the more specific reason that unskilled or incompetent people overestimate their abilities far more than others is because they lack a skill called metacognition. And I love this next statement. This is the ability to know when you're not good at something. I love that. By stepping back, looking at what you're doing, and then realizing that you're doing it wrong. The growth of this kind of stubborn ignorance in the midst of the information age cannot be explained away as merely rank ignorance. In some ways, it is all worse than ignorance. It is unfounded arrogance. The outrage of an increasingly narcissistic culture that cannot endure even the slightest hint of inequality of any kind. Ooh, anyone love a good tension? Can you feel it in the room? What he's not talking about is the inequality of rights. He's talking about the inequality of reasons. He's saying not all reasons carry the same weight. Some carry more logic than others. You gotta pay attention to these things. If you had two people come out here and one says, hey, I believe two plus two is four. And the other person says, well, I disagree. How do you get that number? Well, if you count them, one, two, three, four, it adds up, two plus two is four. And the other person would say, well, I don't agree with you. I believe two plus two is seven. And the other person would say, well, how did you get seven? Well, it's what I feel it is. It's what I think it is. 
And, and folks, here's the deal. Um, those are not the same level of logic. And in this world, it is getting harder and harder to live a wise, rational, logical life that is rooted in the truth when the marching orders are to subscribe to an idea that there is no truth. And your truth is your truth and my truth is my truth. But folks, some things add up and others don't. And the resurrection adds up. Now, I got to say this because you got to know where I'm coming from in this conversation. I was raised by remarkable parents. I was very blessed and spoiled. God gave me a head start with the parents I had. I was raised in a godly home. In fact, I was raised as a pastor's child. There's something in my broken humanity uh, was rebellious, skeptical, and I just had a growing disdain towards church, towards God, and towards his people. I grew up in a church where maybe I was exposed to too much at an early age. I not only heard things in the church, I witnessed things in the church. You know how churches are made up of imperfect people. And I didn't know how to reconcile those things at a young age. So I completely turned my back on God and Midway through high school, I, I start to take a great deal of pride in, in being an atheist, especially an atheist growing up in a pastor's home. As I get off to college, it was, it was that on steroids. I was so ambitious in my pursuit to disprove the nonsense I was taught growing up. I started enrolling into different electives. I wanted to prop myself up with ammunition. Also, I could win arguments pertaining to this nonsense called Christianity. And I remember being taught this verse growing up. The apostle Paul says, if Jesus did not resurrect from the grave, all of scripture is rubbish. And I thought to myself, that's it. I just have to win one argument. If I can prove this to not be true, I can stick it to mom and dad. I can stick it to my uncles and aunties. I can stick it to my siblings and those I grew up with. And I was on a mission with an agenda and ill intent. But I was so disappointed as I got into it to do a deep dive into the theories combating the resurrection. And this might be insightful for some of you. Or maybe some of you who are, you're looking for a way out not to believe. I'm just going to give platform to the leading theories that combat our faith. And some of these you should know, get laughed out of the classroom at a scholarly level, but somehow gain a great deal of traction on the internet. And that's interesting how those things work. The first is what is called the wrong tomb theory. This Theory claims that the guard went to the wrong tomb, the disciples went to the wrong tomb, and the women went to the wrong tomb. Which, I mean, maybe the disciples got it wrong, and maybe the soldier got it wrong, but if you send six women to find a place, they're gonna find it. <laughs> women don't get lost like us men. We also knew who the, the tomb belonged to, and that one doesn't carry water over time. The other is the hallucination theory. This theory 
looks at all the eyewitness accounts. Hundreds, in fact, over 500 people claim to be eyewitnesses to the resurrected Savior. And the hallucination theory says that they all were hallucinated. Which anytime you have these theories, you have to go get the opinions of the experts. Okay, so let's pull neurobiologists into the conversation. Hey, how do hallucinations work? And a hallucination taught by neurobiologists is a chemical reaction in the brain that is uncontrollable and random. This theory claims that without any substance being administered, hundreds of people at the same time had a chemical reaction in the brain that produced an uncontrollable and random vision, yet somehow they all seen the same thing. Well, the experts say that's not how hallucinations work. So that one kind of falls apart. Then there is the decomposition theory. This theory claims that they put Jesus in a tomb and when the lady showed up at the tomb, his body had decomposed, it had decayed, and there was no remains. Which again, how long was he in the tomb? Things don't decay that quickly. And even if the body had decayed, what would have remained? Bones. And so again, most people think, well, that just isn't how decomposition works. So that theory falls apart pretty quickly. The next is what is called the stolen body theory. And there are three opinions as to who stole the body. The first would be the disciples, which is actually a fair assumption. The disciples themselves, when they heard of the resurrection, were like, oh my goodness, who stole the body? They're gonna think we did it. They're gonna come try to arrest and kill us. They too agreed with the assumption. Uh, but then the judicial experts and forensic experts who specialize in these type of matters, they lean into the conversation and they're like, yeah, but you always have to consider the motive. What would have been the motive for these men? To risk their life to save a reputation of a rabbi who's gone also that they can be tor tortured, arrested and murdered? Like that doesn't make sense. They didn't have a motive. The other claims are sorcerers stole the body that the idea was that there are sorcerers who are obsessed with holy individuals and running experiments on their body and somehow they bribed the guard and stole the body. Um, and the final third group of people that uh, there's a growing population that thinks stole the body, uh, they believe aliens took the body. <laughs> yeah, and, and some people give the same response as that. The, the next theory is what is called the evil twin theory. This theory claims that Mary had another son that no one knew about. And he was a maniac and he was a wicked man. And at the last second, they swapped Jesus for the maniac evil twin. Which again, anyone who has observed the cross sees an unconditional love offered by no one else in the world in the most beautiful form and remarkable justice. What you see on the cross is not a maniac and a wicked man. What you see on the cross is the savior of the world redeeming humanity. But the two biggest theories that uh, I would say carry the most ground is one, the swoon theory. The swoon theory claims that uh, Jesus didn't actually die. Their claim is that he didn't resurrect, he resuscitated 
which is a massive insult to the Romans who thought they perfected execution, who would wait until an individual would breathe their last breath and then to make sure he was dead, they would thrust a spear into his side to pierce his lungs, all to make sure he was fully dead. They claim that Jesus, once tucked in the tomb, uh, started to resuscitate and pulled himself together and, and walked out. The problem with this theory is anybody who has had nails thrusted through their hands and feet, whipped with a cat of nine tails and stabbed in the side with a spear is not walking around days later in a perfectly healed body. So this, this is wobbly. And again, it all comes back to individuals saying, well, it's a hoax. And I, I love American history. I, I love reading different things that have happened in our country. And recently I was reading about the Watergate scandal. And Chuck Colson, who was a part of that deal, says this. He says, I know the resurrection is a fact. And Watergate proved it to me. How? Because 12 men testified they'd seen Jesus raised from the dead. Then they proclaimed that truth for 40 years, never once denying it. Everyone was beaten, tortured, stoned, and put in prison. They would not have endured that if it weren't true. Watergate embroiled 12 of the most powerful men in the world, and they couldn't keep a lie for three weeks. You're telling me 12 apostles could keep a lie for 40 years? Absolutely impossible. But the final theory, the, the one that I for the longest time subscribed to, is what is called the naturalist theory. The naturalist theory uh, is described like this by Stanford. Stanford says, these naturalist philosophers aim to ally philosophy more closely with science. They urge that reality is exhausted by nature. Now watch this, containing nothing supernatural and that the scientific method should be used to investigate all areas of reality, including the human spirit, which is so interesting to me. They do not believe in anything supernatural, but they believe in spiritual matters and that they can investigate them. That, that's, that's a wobbly theory. What is frustrating to me about this theory and where I found myself at a dead end is though they demand proof of the supernatural, they refuse to look at any of the data pointing to the supernatural. There's one chapter of the Protestant movement that participated in a case study with churches across 10 different countries. And they did a study on, on miracles. And they have over 2 million miracles documented. And the naturalist community won't even look at the data. So they demand proof for the supernatural, but they refuse to look at proof of the supernatural. And I don't know what else to say besides the fact that my God is a wonder-working God and he's in the business of doing miracles and I'm thankful that he's supernatural and he can do things that I cannot because I need a savior. Anyone else is like, I'm thankful he can do something I can't. So I end with this. 
This past week, uh, Jake Espy, who's on our staff, he's somewhere in the back, had this idea. He said, hey, uh, what do you think about uh, rapping on a video for the opener of Easter? Uh, which, to state the obvious, I am not a rapper. <laughs> and it's funny because it triggered a memory that happened over 18 years ago in my life. The only other time I took a stab at rapping. I don't know what you experienced when you gave your life to Christ, but I know exactly where I was at. I know exactly who I was, what I was doing, who I was with. I can remember it vividly. And I'm so thankful that God has saved a wretch like me because there's a lot of proof. But arguably the greatest proof is a changed life. The greatest proof stares back at you in the mirror. When I found Jesus, I was in this room and uh, that's the first person I ever told, Andrew Hollins, who's my best friend. And despite the hideous models and the horrendous couches, that was a sacred space for me. And in fact, these are some more of my friends. And what I love about this picture is uh, those are the apartments I lived in. And I give my life to Christ and I wake up the next day, I'm at the breakfast table with my teammates. And I say, hey, I, last night I, I surrendered my life to Jesus. And I'm gonna go meet with coach today and give up my scholarship. I wanna go to a school that I can pursue my faith while playing ball at the same time. They thought I was nuts. They actually walked with me to the coach's office, trying to talk me out of it. I get to the coach's office and he says the same thing. CJ, take a week. This is a big decision. But I was so excited. Like, no, I'm, I'm doing it. Anyone who's ever given their life to Christ knows sometimes that comes with relational strain. I was kind of ostracized in some ways relationally because of it. And I moved to Minnesota. I began attending a university there. I meet Kristen, I fall in love with Kristen, I ask Kristen to marry me. And we start planning the wedding and the only thing that a guy gets to decide in planning a wedding is who is gonna stand next to him in the ceremony. The ladies take care of everything else. And I start thinking, well, who's gonna stand in my wedding? There's no doubt who my closest friends are, but in this season, there's a strange dynamic. Um, we don't talk as much. Um, and I wanted to try to tell them uh, my testimony. I wanted to share with them uh, why I did what I did. I wanted to also tell them that I fell in love and, uh, and now engaged. I wanted to invite them to be a part of my wedding, which uh, Andrew Hollins, who you seen in the first photo, um, agreed to be my best man. It's a, it a really big deal to me. And... I decide, well, maybe they'll, they'll listen to me if I put it in a rap. <laughs> Super corny idea, but I'm just the type to put myself out there. And so 18 years ago, I take a stab at it. And here's what I told them. I said to my guys in the struggle, still living life on the bubble, reminiscing those times we used to joke in a huddle. I want you to know that I love you. Know that I'll never forget days that we spent, places we went, things that we did. I just pray that y'all will forgive. 
me for moving on, me for being strong, me for making rights out of my wrongs. I write the song so I can explain the thoughts in my brain on the day I said I gotta get out the game. I never felt like such a lame and it was hard to live it, yet I knew it was time for me to move my pivot and travel on to a place where I knew I belong. So now I'm gone. And I find myself far away from y'all, hesitating every time I go to place a call, never knowing the next time I'll be face to face with y'all. And it's been hard knowing that a part of me's missing, like being engaged before y'all can meet Kristen is something that I never envisioned, nor did I wish. I never planned for things to turn out like this. I guess I just thought we'd always be together staying close like clouds in stormy weather, but never say never because I thought I had the best, but God has shown me a better. So I just encourage you to never let up, though you get fed up. And it seems impossible to keep your head up or stay in stride. Just know that there's joy at the end of the ride. So with time, maybe somewhere down the line, we'll stop and find ourselves standing side by side. But if not, don't cry. Just know that I'll hold tight to those memories and those feelings that I keep inside because it's crazy how we've gone from boys to men. In my mind, all I can hear is that song from boys to men singing over and over again. It's so hard to say goodbye to yesterday when just yesterday you and I were waiting next to play. Now all we do is text and say, hey man, how's your day? I'm on my way to work and I'm running late, but I just thought that I'd say, hey. And that's what it's become. I guess we've been forced to let time and distance take its course. But then again, of course, I still lose my focus. Every time I think of those days on Fotis, when our parties were the dopest, you and I were the closest, until the day that I told you I chose this. And I know I left you confused, but how could I refuse? the opportunity to pursue my dreams, find truth in me. I just wish you could meet the newer me. I love y'all. And that was it. Here's the thing, and I close with this. I promise you, if you give your life to Christ, he will do something so remarkable in your life that when people see your before photos, they'll chuckle along with you because he's that good, amen? He's that good.